listening to Radio Owl's Nest. The songs of Martin Page, all day, all night, forever. So grab a cup of tea, settle down with us in the Owl's Nest. Well, this is a very special, special, special episode. No number on it, it's an original. Uh, my good friend, well, actually, my best friend for millions of years is Mr. Brian Fairweather, my partner as a songwriter all through the late 70s into the 80s. And believe it or not, we are actually making noise together. So we thought, let's do a radio show together again. So here he is, Brian Fairweather. I thought you were talking about somebody else there when you said... <laughs> <laughs> no, you are my best, best friend, friend, aren't you? Aren't oh, yeah, you? Yeah, okay. that's right, yeah. <laughs> It's a joy to I have you here. I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely that they've wheeled him in in a wheelchair. And the nurse has backed off. He's on his own. So now we can ask him to... Oh, yeah, there I am. <laughs> That's a mistake. That was supposed not to be there. <laughs> actually, it came I'm on. I'm here. Yeah, now let me turn that off again. I'm you, actually here you now. Actually, you actually arrived before the door. I have arrived. I have arrived. That is very, very special. Let's turn that off. So, um, a real, real, real buzz uh, to have Brian with me today. And I'm going to ask him lots of questions. We're going to play music in between uh, us rambling together. And we do ramble pretty well, don't we, Brian? We ramble. We don't really write songs. We just ramble and laugh. That's been our whole story of our life. But in between... Um, us rambling, we will be playing you songs that we've been writing together recently. It's been a long time, um, long time coming. I don't want to say how many years, but uh, yeah, one or two. Yeah, don't, <clears throat> don't, don't let. And we won't have any photographs at all of us. Is this as well? <laughs> That's why we do radio shows now. We just do not want just to be play seen. It safe. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be stopping and playing you some things and telling you about that. Also talking about our whole history together. But I want to ask Brian, uh, you were born in Norway, right? When I first met you, you were from Denmark or something? Absolutely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere near Norway. What a start. <laughs> born in Glasgow, Scotland. Ah, now are you, when I met with you, I wasn't sure if you were from Liverpool, but you really are a Scotsman, right? Well, I spent... Uh, 13 years in Liverpool, but uh, born in Scotland, yep. little baby, yep. moved down to London at two years old. Wow. Uh, spent up to grammar school in Liverpool and then moved back to uh, Scotland with my parents. I didn't move back. My now, I always imagined being an Englishman and all the years we've been together, I, these questions I'm going to ask you, I've, I've never asked you, which is pretty amazing, isn't it's it? It's never been relevant. No. <laughs> <laughs> we were actually focused in the early days. We didn't we're care. We were too busy laughing and That's having right. a good time. Well, we didn't care. We just wanted to write songs. But I've got this chance to ask you, um, was Glasgow rough and tough when you were a kid? It was very rough. And it's, it's weird because you, um, when you live in Glasgow in those days, you kind of play up to it. Because I was like, when I went back to Glasgow, when I was two years old, it didn't, I didn't notice Funnily enough. <laughs> Thank God. But when I went back when I was 14, 15, yeah. you, you end up playing up and you, you end up being actually tougher than you are because you, uh, you have this yeah. wall up of defense. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, yeah. when I was at school, I had a hard time at school because I spent 13 years in England in uh, Birkenhead uh, near Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to Scotland, I had this weird accent. Uh-huh. And the last thing you need when you're 14, 15 years yeah, old yeah, and you're going yeah. into high school yeah, in yeah. A, a foreign country is a weird accent or you don't speak the language or whatever. Yeah. And uh, that's what I had. So that was my So lot. you got beat up a lot? Um, 
I don't know. Or you ran really I, fast. I beat up back. Ah. And I, ah. I befriended the toughest guy in the school. Ah. So we Wise used to, move. We Wise used to move. hang out together for, uh, for defense purposes. That's pretty cool. Now, now in Glasgow, and you're a kid there, and you went to you, art college, right? Art Glas college? Yeah, Glasgow School of Art. And th is that what you want to do? Um, I always wanted to be a musician. Right from the beginning? From the very beginning. Well, that's amazing. When my, uh, I remember my brother was three years old. My brother Ian was three years older than I was. And he used to bring back um, Beatles records, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, when I was a little kid. Yeah. And I used to think, that is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But uh, art was just another form of creative expression for me. So, mm -hmm. you know, doing art was just natural. It was you, you're a great drawer. I mean, well, you're a great artist. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, well, and I, technical, I may have been. technical drawing as well. I remember that I saw some yeah. of your technical drawings were very pretty... I Hot. did industrial design yeah, in yeah. Uh, art school. Mm. And the only reason I did that is because I wanted the most um, like technical and academic kind of uh, um, qualification behind me, just yeah, in yeah. case things didn't work out. No, that's very wise. I didn't take any exams, and I escaped them all while you went through it all. But also, <coughs> you... <coughs> If you're not, we all went to art college, didn't we, to get grants and to be rather free back in that time. You could yeah. practice in a band while you were at art college. I mean, Jimmy Page and Townsend, we, all of them, all the guitarists seemed to be at art college. It was almost as if you go to art college and it's kind of incidental. Yeah. Being yeah. at art college because, yeah. it, you know, like you and I both, we both went to art school, but playing in a band was the most important thing. So know? when did when did you get your first guitar? Uh, when I was nine. Oh, no, I'd say before I was nine, actually. I think I was about seven. Not one of those uh, plastic beetle It was. It was, was it? Did I, got I tell one of you those? about that or no, not? No, no, no. But I bought one of those. I mean, you had these plastic strings on it, and it had pictures of the Beatles all pink, and it was like, you know, uh, but you thought you had a guitar. I had a four-string Beatles guitar. So did I. Four Beatles pictures <laughs> on it. So did I. And the first song I ever played was Home and Range. <laughs> in G. So did I. No, oh. no, no. I, <laughs> that, that, I just, played it in G. Weird. I played it in G. You played That's it in right, G. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, those guitars, you couldn't tune up, could you? No, uh, well, you could tune it up, but it wouldn't stay in tune. Yeah. yeah. I, I can imagine you tuning up. But I can imagine me getting really frustrated and go, why doesn't it stay in tune all the time? You know, and <laughs> if you got the Beatles guitar, it should be perfect, right? You would think so. Yeah. Wish so you kept it, though. That's right. I, I actually, I wish I had. I wish Probably I still had the it. I'd have put it on the wall in the studio if I still yeah. had it. That'd be very cool. Now, you, so you started real early, um, but you did um, uh, take it serious right because you were in a band before i met you called oberon which were very genesis and prog rock yes. right was that your first band no that uh, the first band i was ever in was a band that was named after a fleetwood Mac song and it was not not the albatross adventure yeah albatross well yeah. that was a wild guess of mine that yeah. really yeah yeah i just guessed that i thought well, that's are pretty you sure good. i never told you that well, you might have, but um, I can't remember. But I just thought, what what yeah. kind of uh, Fleetwood Mac title could you use for a band? Oh, well, part dun, one. Dun, dun, the, yeah. Although, dun, dun, Albatross, dun, dun, you'd think like, oh, dear. It was, nothing, it was nothing like the song. <laughs> we used to play... Um, Slow and cumbersome. What did we play? We played uh, Canned Heat. Yeah. Well, let's, we, let's get together. Uh, what was that song? No, it was... Uh, on the uh, road again? On the road again. Ma, I'm, I'm hot today. I'm on the road yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, That's a great that, song. And we played that. Uh, Someone's going to get the head kicked in tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't Slade do that? <laughs> um, it sounds like a Slade number, right? 
Well, you see, see, you were doing really, when you think about it, you were doing quite um, important, um, clever music early on. I mean, how, how old were you when you were actually playing those kind of tracks by well, Canned Heat? Were you, were you, over, you weren't nine then, you were in your teens. No, right? I was in my teens. I, yeah. was, I, was, uh, I was actually a guitarist, but yeah. um, uh, Tommy Baker was the, uh, the guitarist in the band, and he was excellent. He was a, a great blues player. So you learned a lot from uh, him. And they didn't need a guitarist because he had Tommy, so uh, I played bass. So wow. I was a bass player, and I was 14 years old. I just got to jump in here and say yeah. this is useful that Brian played bass back then because when we were on the In the House of Stone and Light tour, there was a couple of songs that Brian played bass on, and I was oh, able right, to right, wander right. around the stage and point at people. <laughs> and then you knew how to play bass. Yeah. yeah. I had an old box base. I don't know if you remember the. the oh they yeah, were, they were like plywood. Yeah, remember yeah. that? I remember painted yeah. plywood, and they had four strings on it, and yeah. they called it a bass guitar and put box on the top of it, and it was like, <laughs> there you go. That'll be sixty pounds, please, <laughs> in a pawn shop. In a porn shop? A por- no, porn. Porn. Okay. A-W-A. Okay. So you then? I mean, Ober. You, Oberon was the next band. After that was... Um, what, what I'm getting here, though, is which actually I didn't really know, is that in all these early years, that's really what you were concentrating on yes. all the time. That was your focus. That was my focus. After, I think after uh, Albatross, I, I, that's, that was in Liverpool, in Birkenhead. We did a lot of clubs in Birkenhead and uh, beach parties and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yes. A beach party in Liverpool. It's, that's hard to comprehend. It was it's cold. always raining. It was cold. <laughs> It, actually, it wasn't raining. It was, a, it was the one night of the year that wasn't raining. <laughs> Doesn't did, sound real bright. It's Come called on. good scheduling. So um, after that, we moved up to Glasgow, and uh, I was looking for a band in Glasgow. And uh, I um, first got into, I met um, some old, old friends of mine called Harvey Jarvis and Barbara Aitken at art school, and we, we formed a band called Crusoe. And uh-huh. I was a guitarist in Crusoe. And we did uh, a lot of the, the circuit, the Glasgow circuit in, um, in, uh, in Glasgow. Now, the Glasgow circuit's pretty lively then. There were some good, good bands and good musicians breeding up there, right? There was a lot of, mm. lot of action, especially in the 80s, uh, uh, late yeah. 70s, early 80s. Uh, there were, you know, and, and still is a hotbed for, for talent, yeah. you know. It's, there's a lot of talent in Glasgow. So when did you join? Um, well, I always when I met you first, Oberon was the band that I remember thinking more about that you were, that was quite focal to your coming up to London. Oberon was um, how did it start? There was there was I, I saw an advert. I think somebody uh, put an advert out in a local paper, and uh, it was the eventual keyboard player. But at the time, he was the bass player of the band, Paul Wilson, and um, Paul and I got together and I the first thing I, I remember thinking when I saw Stephen, his name is Stephen, Paul Wilson, was he he looked like a baby because yeah. I was like you know 20, well, no, 20 I, years I, old. Again for everybody I have to jump in here when I met Brian he was like a wild man he had hair that was like <laughs> he looked like he was. Uh, he just stopped there I had hair. <laughs> Jethro Tull. Just think <laughs> Jethro Tull. Um, and that's when I met Brian. He was what you would think would be coming from Scotland with the band like Thin Lizzy or something like that. There was definitely a um, hairy thing going on. There was a hairy thing going on. It was a Paul Kossoff gig. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Which I loved. I thought, oh, yeah. that's the real thing. Well, yeah. obviously, so did I. <laughs> <laughs> it was Paul Kossoff actually trying to look like me. 
<laughs> not me trying to look like Paul Carson. <laughs> so Oberon, though, Oberon did Genesis kind of prog rock, right? And Steely Dan, though. You yes. We, we Sophisticated. Start, we started off with a, a, a little band that um, Paul Wilson had had for, you know, it was a little three or foursome. And yeah. uh, we did some personnel changes and got a couple of guys in that I, that I knew. And uh, we switched Paul from uh, bass to keyboard player because he was a really good keyboard player. And uh, they had they had tons of keyboards. They uh, they even had had a Mellotron, which we that used was, to. That was the actual godlike keyboard oh. that everybody wanted at that time. Unbelievable. Now, for you out there thinking what the Mellotron is, we know just think about uh, the Beatles and what was the song they used that on? Uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. Yes. And of course, uh, this was vocals all on tape, so you were, you were able to bring a choir and an atmosphere of um, reverence to your songs, right? Well, the greatest. Uh, the greatest example of the use of Mellotron as a main keyboard was in 10 CC. Remember? I'm not in love. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I fell in love to that song. Yeah. yeah. That you did what? To another woman? To No, man. <laughs> <laughs> Cut the show. We stop here. Start again. <laughs> of course, another woman. So, um, Mellotron. Are well, you a romantic at heart then? Oh, romantic. I am. Yeah. I am. I mean, music. So, if I was to play now. It's music that touches you, right? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. Uh, well, sounds a bit like Travis. <coughs> Trevor Small, Trevor Small Yeah, we're leading somewhere Sorry, here again. Sorry, Trev. If, so if I played a Mellotron chord now, you would go all soft and gooey. I'd go all soft and gooey. But you wouldn't come toward... You, you uh, would no, no, no. Still, that's still not the weight of my heart, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You're going the wrong way. So, so we're talking about progressive <laughs> rock here. We're going to get out of this tangent. And you went... But Oberon... You thought you may be, that may be the band, right? That might get signed and everything. There was a lot of potential there. Well, we were playing the circuit with Cato uh, Bell. And, oh, Cato uh, Bell. They, they had the reputation of oh, being were. red hot. Yeah, they, Session they, we, we, we figured we were the hottest bands on the circuit at the time. It was Oberon and Cato Bell. That's big news. And uh, we all used to go to the same parties. We used to go to each other's gigs. And yeah. uh, it was uh, it was a really magical time. Um, and, and when you think about it, from what I knew in, in London following it, the Kadu Bow did get signed, didn't they? They did, Yeah. yes. We didn't, on mm. the other hand. Yeah. We, um, we did the circuits long after they, uh, they got signed. And uh, remember Johnny and the Self-Abusers? Yeah. They yeah. eventually became Simple Minds. Oh. Uh, they were playing uh, oh. round about the same time as we were up in uh, in Glasgow, but we moved on. Playing all playing the same circuit then, in a way. Same circuit, yeah. yeah. There, there, there were only like you know certain pub gigs you could play in Glasgow. I mean, it wasn't like there was a ton of gigs to play. So know? even then, you might have been thinking as a Scottish band that you needed to break out and come into England and London. Yes, yes, and that's what we decided to do. Yeah, two ton van. Yeah, all on the back of it with a mattress. Oh, those were the days. Yes. That's Cigarette we smoke, stopping every like fifty hours to let people have some baked beans and toast. We on lived the on cigarette yeah. smoke. Yeah, yeah, that, that was your oxygen, wasn't that it? That was my main protein, <laughs> tobacco. <laughs> Do you know what we talk about? We actually we talked about this in the kitchen before we did the radio show here because we are at Radio Owls Nest and the kitchen is very near to us so that we can have our cups of tea. And we were we were saying that um, in those days you lived for being in a van, stuck in uh, all crunched up, going to a gig that is sixty miles away, and then turning around, coming back, no sleep, going out again. But nowadays. I looked at Brian and said, mm. I don't think we could pro probably do that again. I, I can't we? imagine it. It gives me a headache. You load all your it. gear and you load it all out. I know. You do it everything. You, you mix yourself. I remember one day we, apprenticeship. Went, we went to Greenock with uh, with Oberon. And Greenock is this little place on the, the, the west coast of Scotland. 
and uh, we were were driving up the road, and uh, we went around a corner in a transit van, and the uh, the the side door flew open, and the drum kit <laughs> fell out. <laughs> I was like, hmm. Couldn't go through that again. No, no, it's it's a, it's too actually, painful. But th- when you think about it, though, um, if we hadn't gone through it, we wouldn't have. You wish you wish to get through it, although it is so. Sp- it's very romantic, isn't it? Well, when, when you're it, doing it as a team, when like it was an hap- army, when it's yeah. happening, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Yeah, you know. And I look back on it, I kind of remember the good times more than I remember the bad times. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it was so a lot the, of good times. The music papers, Music Express, and Melody Maker. You used to see with the, these bands that may, weren't even signed. You know, like Kadu Bell in the early days. But you had a lot of respect for these yes. touring bands that were doing the doing the roots, didn't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. It was a yeah. special romantic time. I don't. I don't think it's the same now, is it? Um. Well, you were back in Being England. the age yeah. I am, I'm not yeah. in touch with it. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know and I don't see it. I mm. see, you know, like with the, the way the music business is these days um, with downloads as opposed to records. And there's not the same um, uh, interactivity. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like picking up that record and sticking it on a Well, I suppose what we're, what we're about to lead into there is technology has changed yeah. so much that so there's yeah. not a need to do it, is there? It's a no, different kind not. of thing. Hey, this is a perfect perfect time to play a brand new song that me and Brian are working on. And the song is called Spook. And I'll let Brian, uh, before we spin it, tell you a little bit about it. Okay, well, Spook was um, an idea that Martin came up with, that uh, it was something we neither of us knew what we were going to do with it. And it was a, a very basic uh, chorus and, uh, and, a, and a groove. Yep. And uh, I took it back home, and we uh, we we sort of messed with it. We majorly. really tore it apart. We just messed it. with yeah, it, and yeah. I kept coming back to Martin. He would say, "Like that, don't like that." And eventually, we we built it into roughly what you're going to hear right now. It's got a mystique to it. It's got a a depth to it that um, it's got it's, a bit of what Q feel was in the early days as well. As well. So, here, everybody, is a little thing that Brian and I... What's a thrill to write together again? This is called Spook. Spook, spook, roll the pony, turn me around, dig me up, a spook, spook, roll the pony, turn me around, dig me up, a spook, spook, roll the pony, turn me around, dig me up, a spook, spook, roll the pony, turn me around, dig me up, a spook, spook, ro
all Brian. I mean, it's one chord in this song, and Brian actually went back to his place and developed it into all those exciting parts. I have to say, bro, I didn't know you were a horn arranger. Am now. <laughs> Moving on, and we've got Mr. Fairweather coming now from Scotland into London. It wasn't the whole band that came up; it was just you and two players, right? No, there was. Uh, it was a five-piece band, I believe, and we. Uh, the keyboard player, myself, and the drummer uh, ended up going down. Um, our bass player, uh, Cy Jack, who is an in- incredible bass player, but he uh, he had a job with the BBC and he did the right thing and stayed and uh, probably he's got his pension now. Well, I used to call people that wore suits. He turned into a suit man, right? Maybe I not. I can never see Cy as a suit man, okay. but uh, he, okay. he definitely was a very creative guy and he was in the right job. But a yeah. uh, great bass player, but uh, you know he made the decision not to come down with us. So three of us, drummer, keyboard player, guitarist. And you decided that this is it. We're going to stay. We're going to stay. In oh, London. I loved the idea of London. It, it was that like you say I'm a romantic when it when I thought of London. Yeah, I, I did the same. I did this the is same. What you, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have that. Just feeling. oh, just driving yeah. into London. It's 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 an amazing feeling. I used to always have my amp in the back of the car and the bass. And you just would drive as soon as you saw London appear off of the freeway because I came from Southampton and Hampshire. And you leave all the trees behind. You just go, oh my god, this is paradise. This is it. This is where it happens. Hammersmith Odeon, yeah. Marquee all the gigs that you dreamt about all the gigs that you look at in the newspaper i had the yep. same feeling brian when i was getting into london and just being there i thought this is where it happens yes i've got to be here well i remember toting uh, our little demo tape around in those days it was a cassette tape right yeah oh yeah yeah and um yeah. we would go to like 
directly to the gigs like uh, that we we had heard in Scotland were the the best gigs to go to. Yeah, yeah. And it was like you know the um, the marquee, like you were talking about the Open Anchor, Fulham Palace Road, yeah, you know, the yeah, Greyhound. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I used to go in there and we'd see like the jam stickers up on oh, the wall and yeah, think, yeah. Oh, these guys are playing here. Yeah, you know? marquee was like that, wasn't yeah. it? Every single and of course, average white band must have been to a Scottish band. Were oh, they around so the same time or before you guys? They were before us, but. Um, they were kind of my um, my best friends in Glasgow's older brothers band. That's they used pretty to complicated for musicians yes, to remember that. that. Yeah, yeah, it was a little bit tar- too hard for me. Just edit it out. <laughs> just, the hell. You know who we're playing to. You know who's listening to it. Don't get technical. I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> you know my audience. <laughs> but London was magical, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would never swap that experience for anything. Yeah, um, it's really great to talk about this because it's bringing back to me what it was like to be in a bed sit and with the musicians and just you were going to struggle with five pounds in your pocket and uh, you were just going to fight on every day but you were in london i know it was a meager existence wasn't yeah. it yeah yeah yeah. Well, yeah. You, you didn't have much food you didn't have much drink but uh but you had, you had so the hope yeah so there's three friends there but you must have thought because i uh, we're, we're moving on here to when i actually met brian and brian came to an audition for a band called the charlie mullen band so you must have thought hey i have to do auditions besides my mates here i have to move on well we were we ended up in uh the the oberon band ended up getting a new singer a new bass player and uh excellent uh players but all we ended up doing is rehearsing i don't know if you remember tom robinson band we used oh to, i do yeah yeah, yeah the big hit didn't they we used time, to yeah. practice down south in the south of uh, london in, yeah. in the basement of tom robinson's wow. basement yeah yeah but that's where we lived. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't do any gigs. Yeah. And I was thinking, I want to play. I want to get out there. I want, yeah. to, I yeah. want to do gigs. I want to be a, a musician and a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the... Um, the ads in was it melody maker melody maker i put the ad in i was uh, i was with already in this band called the charlie mullen band and uh, charlie had trusted me to be sort of the uh, so-called music director and he said i want a new i want a whole brand new band uh, and when i joined that band there were other players so i decided to put a advert in the melody maker which which you did and if you if this ad had, was in a box and it said uh, about to sign record deal you would get a lot a lot of response so well uh, uh, charlie had the money i did the ad and um i met brian at the Charlie Mullen Guitar Auditions. And um, those auditions, where we were also doing auditions for drummers, and there was about 30 drummers, and there was about 50 guitarists. And uh, I was, t- I in my mind, wanted to have two guitarists in the band because I was a fan of Thin Lizzy, and I thought the dual guitars were very exciting. And I knew Charlie's music could take this, but that's where I met you first, Brian. You know, I mean, when I first met you, all I could see was hair. <laughs> it and was walking hair and with a guitar. Nose sticking out. Yeah, and there was, I think, a black Les Paul, right? It's a black Les Paul. Oh, the black sure Les Paul guitar. Nothing Still like got that. it today. And uh, uh, probably Brian remembers more about that audition, and we're going to talk about that. But we're going to stop here for a second and play another brand new track that we wrote, and this one's called History. And I'll let Brian tell you because Brian started this song. Started off with. Um you know, you'll hear in the intro uh, some chords, uh, ascending chords, and uh, then it goes into like a, a kind of verse. But there wasn't really that much to it, to be honest. Uh, played it to Martin. Martin says that we've got something here. This this is something I can work on. And he came in with a with a, a melody and and some vocals and really made it special and uh, some some great lyrics. Uh, the, the name is history. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it is a very positive sounding song. Could and what we're going to play you is, uh, is you're going to hear something that's really rough. It's my guide vocals and just the backing track. Again, it seemed to have, we looked at each other, so we got a bit of the flavour of the old Q-field thing we've going there. But we are fair with the page, so we're songwriters first. But here we are, we're going to play you something really rough. Brian started this one, and it's called History.
song actually we're not finished i mean absolutely brand new me doing guide vocals but that's a track called history We've, we're now going into the history of london because that's when i met brian and uh what was the audition like brian when i met with you what, what can you remember any of that I, vividly wow vividly at your age <laughs> yes even at my age <laughs> now what what happens is in in an audition situation you're used to like maybe uh two three guitarists or something yeah like that, maybe maybe right? even one i went for auditions where it was just me and two other guys that right was it. yeah this yeah. was a, this was a football crowd wasn't that's it? what i expected <laughs> what i got was i think there were 30 guitarists is that right mm. something like that it was i think it was more actually because um i'd had that ad out for quite a while but i do know that we had a waiting room and we had a couple of specialists sort of saying, number three, I come know. in now. And I know it was about 30, 30. We were all 30. twiddling our thumbs in the next room. Waiting yeah, and I suppose you, you, know, I, I, you must have heard some of the music going on in the room because it was me and Trevor and a keyboard player. And we were just running through, I think, three songs that we'd sent you to learn, right? Yes, yes. The, the ad said, I remember the ad said, uh, must be, it was like imperative, mandatory, you were into Steely Dan, Hall and Oates. Wow, I can't remember that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and something else, and I can't remember what the something else was, but um, it, it, it ticked all the boxes. That fascinates me. I can't remember how I put that ad in there. That's yeah. amazing. Oh, Amer did you America. put the ad in? I wrote it all, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah. it was Charlie that put it in. No, no, Charlie yeah. sort of, um, uh, he was very, very trusting of me, and he just said, do you think we need some new players? And I had this vision that the band I was going to be in was going to be a mixture of Hall & Oates, Thin Lizzy meets Toto, meets something incredible from America. But I did think that we needed two guitarists because I was a huge fan of Phil Linnott and I thought we needed to have that real sense of dual guitars. But I, if you can remember anything about that audition, because I can't, not too much. We, but we were well, on that, that is age. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Thank you for that. Thank you. You're Thank asked, you asked for that. <laughs> we were on, weren't we near the um, Thames? We were right on the Thames. It you could see the you could see the river through, yeah. the, through the big window. Yeah. And Kate Bush had had been rehearsing there before. Is that right? That's now right. You, now you tell me I, something I can't remember. Yeah. It was a special room. It was a great room. It was uh, you know it'd be very relaxing in another situation, but you yeah. know, everybody wanted that gig because they were offering fifty pounds. Were we? That's a bit over the 50 top. Fifty pounds a month or oh fifty pounds a week. I can't yeah. remember what it we was. We weren't cheap then. But anything over like a drink. Yeah. In payment yeah. was worth it. So That's fifty right. pounds was like what? Yeah, yeah. So I was determined I was gonna get this gig. You now, know? You, now this is really great about auditions and I'm sure a lot of you music, musicians out there know this feeling. You're sat in a room, right? I mean I was uh, able to be the the, the the guy who's playing the music in the other room and seeing guitarists come in and just check them out. But you have to be in a waiting room, right? You have to be in a waiting room, and I was waiting with my, my buddy Ellis. Remember Ellis? I do, drummer, right? Ellis Mandelstam, yeah. And he came for the audition for drums, yeah. and I came for the audition for guitar. Ah. So uh, we both listened to the, the, the cassette tape, you know, that was sent to us, and uh, I, I just... Did you practice, much? I wore that thing out, you know. <laughs> I was determined uh -huh. I was going to get this gig. Of course, you have no control over it. You walk yeah. in there, and it's like yeah. you play your best, and... Yeah. You hope for the best, you know. Yeah. I, I have to say here, though, 
all those guitarists <laughs> came through, and um, the drummer that was what became the drummer, Trev. uh, Trevor Thornton, who became the Q-Field drummer, and he was so so young that we were, he was he sat down every time somebody else came in to play the drums. He was very we were using his drum kit, not him, um, but we didn't want a young guy in the band. But Trevor did end up being the guy. But I remember when Trev uh, when Brian came in and played, I instantly knew that we had a very very special guitarist on our hands who had such a understanding of American rock. And I mean that's quite strange but i think sometimes you think of scottish musicians sometimes had a great affinity to what came from america yeah that um well believe it or not there's um a lot of american influence in uh, like country music yeah uh, or or the other way around like you know scott's influence in uh, american country music as well like bluegrass and uh, you know the appalachian mountains yeah yeah that's where a lot of scott's settled yeah um you went to an even colder place oh no colder place <laughs> <laughs> I always remember Billy Connolly saying when the Scots left Scotland, they went to the Appalachian Mountains. It's absolutely <laughs> obvious right. they would go there. <laughs> Sucked in naturally. <laughs> it feels like home. <laughs> they got the, the the weirdest people went to the Appalachians, <laughs> as we all know. Now, jumping on here, because we, 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 we're moving through everything, actually, uh, Brian got chosen. Uh, I knew on the day that Brian was a guitarist, another guitarist called Dick Scarf, and I thought I had the two really most brilliant guitarists I could get in London, and I still believe that now we we were in uh, brian had just joined then a band called the charlie mullen band i spoke on episode four with trevor thornton about this charlie mullen he was an incredibly strange and wonderful character in many ways but i wanted to see what uh, brian thought about being in the charlie mullen band of course when we finished the auditions we went back to a big house in hampstead where we all sat around with wine and big rooms and uh, uh, groupies everything was nice and just felt like a real rock band but what did it feel like to you when you got chosen for Charlie Mullenburn? It was unreal. I, I thought I'd hit the big time. I thought this is it. For a very short time, right? For a very short time. <laughs> now, we we went into 14 days, was it, of like intense rehearsal. It you, was I can't like, remember that. I thought, uh, yeah, yeah, we had like about 12 songs and we had to learn 12 songs perfectly. Yeah. Um, you know, in fact, there was some minor choreography there with the guitarist walking forward That's to the stage. Right. Remember all I, that? I yeah. do now, yeah, because it was that yeah. Thin Lizzy thing. Yeah. And we had the uh, the confetti bombs on stage. Oh, we had a lot of money uh, somehow. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we had backing, right? That's right. And yeah. we did, We, had, we after those rehearsals then, Brian, we went and played, as Trevor said, I think some of the biggest London gigs very quite quickly, didn't we? Yeah, we played the music venue. machine, the venue. The venue was huge. Yeah, that, yeah. that was, uh, I think they had every uh, record uh, company executive yeah. available in London. Char Charlie seemed to have this way. He had contacts. He yeah. had contacts and um, uh, making the a long story quite short, he was very, very um, uh, pronounced and being a bit of a con man and being a businessman at the same time. Uh, fantastic. We thought we were going to be in one of the biggest bands in London for that time. So when we played mm. these London gigs, everybody that was anybody from record labels was sat there, weren't they? Yes. And we thought, this is it. You know, we're like a nine-piece, nine or 12 or 14 or 15-piece band. band. Huge band. Huge. Yeah. I think we had two drummers. Didn't we? we had one percussionist and a one drummer. Percussionist, that yeah. That's right. And we had uh, three girl singers. Yeah. Sax uh, player. We had Mel... Mel Collins. Mel Collins. Yeah, from yeah. Kokomo. And... Yeah. Um, top session player uh, who was with us. I think that was Star Power brought in. And yep. we had a keyboard player called Dave Fischel. Who Dave came, Fischel. God, mate, yeah. I'm remembering all this. And it was uh, he was from Liverpool. And came we from Liverpool. And I think we, it was you and another guitarist, myself on bass, and Charlie. And we did these six good gigs, and I think they were quite well-received gigs. I mean, we were, we were playing quite well at that time. i got to tell everybody that's listening 
that because this is radio and you don't have a visual. Mm. This is the first time I saw a bass player jump off of the stage and walk through the the audience with a plugged in. This was before radio <laughs> mics and radio uh, uh, leads. Play with a plugged in bass oh my God. in the audience. Oh my God! You used to whip them up. I'd never seen anything like that. You were uh, you were a force. Yeah, well, I was. I, you to know, be reckoned you, with. You, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think when I played these gigs i'd look at the stage and go can i actually get down there and, and you then, did and then get back up again uh, and uh, that was the hard part yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm down here i'm down here you play the rest of the gigs on the floor with the, the audience <laughs> they don't seem to need me back up there where's martin going <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, charlie you know he was, he was quite into it he said go and do do your thing you know and um one one thing we must bring up here is we were one of these bands that were amateurish but amateur but we had all the pyrotechnics yes. we had um yeah, as Brian and said confetti bombs and explosions at certain i mean it was pretty amazing we had all this going on at the same time but i do remember we did one gig and charlie didn't have the greatest eyesight and um he used to he was actually very short-sighted and when the when the stage was dark and uh, couldn't see much he would walk across all the uh, guitarist pedals right that's right so brian would go oh get away get He'd away unplug them all <laughs> as he walked across the stage <laughs> so we were, we were sort of on the defensive as our songwriter our singer went wandering around and once because i knew he couldn't see so well you know and he turned around to me and go what song are we going to sing next what is it because we had a, we had it written down and i mentioned it to him but what charlie didn't also realize that there were pyrotechnics very near where he bent down to read what song he had to <laughs> and we had a guy who was i should say the word pissed he was very drunk who had to push the button at the right time when the certain song happened and uh, he was supposed to be rehearsed but as charlie bent down in the darkness to to look at what song he had to play next the man pushed the pyrotechnics <laughs> the right, right in his face <laughs> and all i saw was hair being blown back <laughs> are you sure that wasn't me because that happened to me too oh well, you were probably in that in yeah. that same explosion music man it was the that's music right. man uh, that's right gig, and there was a scotland england game on yeah, and I'll, we had all the fans in there huge crowd and uh you and came it was on elvis costello was in the crowd that's well. right he elvis was, costello he, was, was there. he was there to see the explosion <laughs> of a songwriter well right. the singer blew up yes never seen a man exploded before on stage <laughs> it was fascinating and <laughs> <laughs> and the crowd cheered. <laughs> My hair was on fire. You, you were, you were, you. Were, it was very dangerous actually, because I think it you was. were thinking about fire as well. Because I mean, I just remember seeing Charlie, just like in the Poltergeist movie, where just all this white light went past <laughs> this man's head. And the thing was, after I thought that's pretty impressive. We should do that every night. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> thought it was part of the act. Yeah. No. So, as you can gather here, the Charlie Mullen band was short-lived, but it was very, very exciting. And then, and the, and then the big, big picture. I met with Brian, and instantly we became friends, didn't we? Absolutely. Yeah. There was uh, something, something really clicked. It yeah. was, uh, it was funny because the, the band was all about Charlie Mullen, but for me, it was more about who ran the band, and that was you. Yeah, yeah I, you know, it's a funny thing, bro. I don't think I was running the band, but Charlie was becoming more and more um, strange, wasn't he? Yes. You know, I mean, we, we ha this is another story that we had, that at the end of the six gigs, because Charlie wasn't the most friendly to some people, we had a roadie come up to both me and Brian and say, I know he's, we don't like him and you don't like him. Do you want us to knife him? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Which, and he actually did say that. He yeah. actually did say, I got We could take care of him. Yeah, got, I got a knife on me. And if you want it to happen, Martin and Brian, we love, word. we love you. And he won't even know anything about it. I mean, <laughs> that's how the 70s were. But they were like pirates, these guys, right? Yeah, they? and we, yeah, they were like pirates. I mean, really, they were like the road crew that had been touring with Jethro Tull for 50 years. I mean, it was like... Bandanas they, and missing teeth. Yes, yes. <laughs> knife, <laughs> knife in the mouth. We finished off a lot of other singers like him. It's not a problem. Uh, but we both, Brian and I, said, I think it was the Marquee we did that. We said, no, Marquee. Let, let him live. Yeah. Let him Wardour live. Street. That's there we right. go. Yeah. <laughs> Death on Wardour Street. Wouldn't have been too good. Um, we're going to go straight into another song that we've written together. Um, and this is a song called The Soul Engineers. We're having fun with this. It's a rough mix we're going to play you. Not finished. But again, I think Brian has a bit of that q feel vibe. Got a little magic. Yeah, so here it is, a roughie, the soul engineers.
There we go, the Soul Engineers playing you some real, 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 real roughs here and some stuff from the archives that um, really quite exciting for me and Bride to play you because we haven't finished this stuff but we're having fun working on them. Now we're getting back to the Charlie Mullen experience of the 70s. That actually, when the Charlie Mullen band broke up, right, Bri, we became songwriters together. That's right. That and was, that was the beginning of that. That was the birth of uh, Fairweather Page. Because um, um, I think the backers of Charlie believed in you and me and they said, well, well, we'll stop backing Charlie. We'll give you £30 each. And uh, we had this Jewish consortium that was actually helping us develop to be songwriters. So we got a little four-track. We went into my flat in Islington. And at that point, if I'm right, Brian, I, and I'm old, so you might have to help me with this. Didn't we, at that point, say we have to put everything into being songwriters? Yes. Uh, at that point, it was more about being backroom boys and getting the, the material. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, I used to always think, I don't know if you did when you're in, uh, in your bands, I used to think however good the band looks, however well we play, it's always going to come down ultimately the to the song. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we actually uh, sat in that little uh, Islington flat and we um, wrote songs at that point and that was the beginning, I suppose, of our career with Zomba and uh, I suppose the beginning of Q-Field. Can you remember anything about that period in my flat? I know you used to bring up a Fender amplifier up the staircase. Well, I used to get it down from... I used to live in Muswell Hill. Those who live in London know that's in the north of London. Uh, Where all guitarists live. Right about N10, I think it is. London N10. I used to get a bus from Muswell Hill down to Islington, Nine Ockenden Road, where Martin lived. That's it. That's the place. And I used to put my Fender Twin Reverb amp (gasps) combo... In, you know, remember the old luggage things under that, the those amps are so heavy yes so, so I used to put that under there my, my guitar under there and I used to go upstairs for a smoke ah and then okay. I'd get close to the and run downstairs and sort of like run nobody up the nobody stolen your amp right nobody stole the amp <laughs> and they didn't even think about it in those days you know crazy youth crazy i i can still think that we had three floors to go up um on the, and i lived at the top flat of nine knockerton road very high in islington how brian trudged that amp and in those days we were so enthusiastic that i'd say do you want to leave your amp here overnight and brian go no i'm taking it home because i might Got write practice. i might write something on the bus <laughs> <laughs> on the bus <laughs> that's how dedicated plug me in i'm ready to go <laughs> i can't sleep without my amplifier right next to me lad <laughs> Um, now that led us on at that period um, when we were writing on a four track to actually join uh, to a label. We, we took our songs, I think. We made cassettes, as we said before, this retro show. And we made these demos, which I think were right ac- not even Q-Field demos. They were right across the spectrum because we liked American music very strongly, didn't we? Yes. So we, we were very influenced by bands like Hall & Oates and Toto and Boss Gags. We really felt that that was musicianship we could aspire to didn't we yes now um we we used to sit for hours listening to uh to american music uh earth wind and fire yeah uh, brothers johnson yeah i remember you're a big brothers oh. johnson fan because yeah. of the bass but yeah. uh yeah i mean that's uh, i could see that in your performance and your playing yeah. with the slap and pull all yeah. that kind of stuff Great turn that was that was a magical time I and mean, it was education for us you know because yeah. we were just like soaking everything up yeah um, we discovered Prince around about that time, remember? I do, Brian. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And this was, you know, somebody like Prince was phenomenal yeah. in, the, in those days that played every single instrument. And at that same time, we would also be influenced by something like the fusion 
jazz bands that were happening then. There was Stanley Clark and the Romantic Warrior album and Chick Corea. I know that around the edges we would actually learn those albums, yes. wouldn't we? Just to, yes. so that we were we were fascinated with American recording and how you could get great sonics and um, something about America always made us feel like we need to aspire to that um, great recording ethic, didn't we? A musicianship. Well, when you heard something American. If it was quality American, which a lot of it was that we were listening to, we felt obliged. I mean, it, it was like your duty to learn how to play it. Absolutely. It was yeah. like, we need to be this good. You know, yes. there's, there's no way, no second best in this, in this game. Absolutely. You had to be the best. And we used to, and in those days, um, I wonder if any of you out there can relate to this, and I'm sure you can, but we bought the albums and we studied all the players that played on these records because everybody would be credited so brian would say look it's steve lukather playing on this session and i'd say oh look it's willie weeks playing bass on this and it was really something we aspired to to be session players and their names being credited which you don't see these days right no that's right that was, that was a big part of listening to an album was reading the uh, the, the notes le yeah. reading the sleeve you know we'd li we'd listen to uh, yeah. the album at the same time reading where it was recorded Magical. who produced it yeah. who was the engineer yeah. who were the musicians who wrote what I, I got to so I got to jump in here that we're saying it at this point because really ultimately we did end up in Los Angeles working with these people that we'd studied on paper we were we did end up in the studios with Earth Wind and Fire we did end up with uh, Toto players we did end up with um, Abe Laborio and John Robinson on drums I mean we f we st we knew so much about them before we uh, even came to LA and to be in the rooms with them was pretty stunning wasn't it it was a uh, dream come true yeah. I remember we went to uh, courtesy of Diane Poncher our our mutual manager at yep. the time uh, we got to go to uh, a Earth, Wind & Fire concert at Wembley. Remember that? That's in the early days of Q-Phil. Yeah, back in yep. England. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd seen Earth, Wind & Fire blown away by yeah. the performance. I mean, everything was choreographed down to a second, down to a step. Yeah. And we, um, who got, got our tickets from Diane, we went to Wembley very early, got there before anybody else did, and we sat in the front, nearly the front row, and we watched Earth, Wind & Fire come out, Brian, me, and Trevor, and we watched them w work around the piano and get their songs together. And we both were looking at each other saying, that's what a pro band does before they even play. They're working out their arrangements before they play. They're still thinking about the music. Lo and behold, um, we didn't know Earth, Wind & Fire but, but at that time, but about two months later, we were actually working with them, which is a phenomenal. They were in, the, were in yeah. the sound studio with them. Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, they, they had nothing against Scotsman, which I was quite surprised about. I was very pleased about that. <laughs> <coughs> you changed your accent, didn't you? <laughs> Scottish beat? No. no, no, not me. Hey, we're going to jump straight back here because we're moving on at quite a speed here. But when me and Brian decided to be uh, songwriters, we had this thing that we said, there's Lennon and McCartney, there's Bugatti and Musker, there's Holland, Dozier, Holland. There's these teams, and we loved that. And I, we both loved that on record labels, in brackets, were the, these names that you saw. And you thought, those are the real real masters of why this record happened. So we made this pact, didn't we, Bright? Um, Fairweather Page. And I Fair thought, why page. isn't it Page Fairweather? But Fairweather Page sounded better. <laughs> it did sound better. It looked better on the back of the jackets we made as well, remember? <laughs> oh, my God! Oh, no! I don't... Hey, Embarrassing is it, as it is. No, no, we no. Made we made jackets. We made... We had these American baseball jackets because we were very influenced by America and we put Fairweather Page cut out, didn't we? And your girlfriend put our name on the back of our... That's right. Yeah. It and it looked great. 
It was sewn on and embossed in the back of the jacket. And we wore them with great, great honor. And oh, we uh, were so proud of those jackets. We turn up to record companies wearing it, and they're like, oh, these guys are really serious, or they're idiots, or whatever. They had no idea what to make of us. We turned up in a base, baseball jacket, or it was, it was like a college jacket, right? college jacket. American there's a, college there's a jacket. There's name for them. I can't remember what it is. It's like a letter jacket or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I keep on saying uh, baseball jackets. But and it was like uh, we had a white, white shirt and a tie, or a like school yeah. tie. Well, we, but this is another, another uh, story that I, I actually forgotten, but our manager, Diane, at that time told me about, that um, we used to turn up uh, at appointments wearing English ties, and maybe we'd be carrying briefcases full of cassette songs. <laughs> used to frighten a lot of people. Oh. <laughs> well, we can, you know, uh, I won't go too fast here, but as you can tell, back in London at that time when Brian and I said we're going to be songwriters, we took it very serious, and um, we made, uh, even our cassettes were printed up with Fairweather Page very professionally, mm. had our telephone number on it, didn't it? Yes, right. And it had the address. That is where creativity came from. We gave about. everything up. <laughs> what size of underpants we wore? <laughs> Which didn't help us at all. None of that helped us. But out of this songwriting period, um, we actually went to a publisher called um, Zomba, and they were a new publishing company in London. And uh, I turned up at the at the door. Um, well, why were we going for publishing deals? I'd never known. We, we just said it's the right thing to do. We could have mm. gone for a recording contract, but we didn't really know what we were doing, did we? No, not at that time. We were we were sort of like admired in songwriting. So, mm. you know, we were looking at um, like you were saying all the uh, you know the the uh, the partnerships that yes. seemed to be published. They were published. Yeah. And we were learning at that time what publishing and recording means. You know. Yeah. You get publishing royalties. You get you get mechanical royalties from recording. You get publishing royalties from writing you know yeah yeah so we were learning the difference and we thought this was the right thing to do at the time and i turned up at all these appointments you know uh, and brian did as well we sort of we, one time i would go then brian would go then we go together we went to chrysalis records and uh, chrysalis publishing and they showed some interest in us we went to um i believe djm and they hated my our songs <laughs> And they sent me a letter, which I've still got, that said, you, oh, you it, really, it really, uh, and I framed it, and it really did say, you know, you guys are lovely, but you really should think about doing something like manual labor. Don't give up your day job. It was like it. that. It was there. And I thought, I don't, I don't like that at all. I won't say a bad word, but I was like, no, no, I'm going to fight past that. Now, this was Elton John's company, so I was very hurt by that. Then we tur I turned up at a company I didn't know called Zomba, and I turned up at 7 a.m. in the morning. And little did I know that the man who made me turn up at 7 a.m. in the morning, which was Ralph Simon at this company, he said, I'm more impressed that you turned up at, On seven, time. <laughs> yeah. at 7. No musician yeah. turns up at 7. And, make a long story short, he liked a song called Doctor on the Radio. Mm -hmm. um, and he heard um, uh, Brian and my demos past that point, and he said, I want to, which is quite surprising, he said, you, you should um, make a record, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Which we were surprised about. Yeah, um, we hadn't really thought about like uh, making a record. We just wanted to be the, uh, you know, the Motown gang. You yeah, know, we yeah. wanted to be in there, being songwriters, writing for other yeah. people. But you know, when we, the more we thought about it, when we went away from it, the more it made sense. It's like it was a, it was a vehicle for our, our songs, and it made sense to Zomba as well because you know it's a publishing company's uh, uh, gig to get songs covered. So if you've got a an uh, ready-made band there covering their own songs you've got some covers absolutely and uh, you know he must have heard something in our demo actually the demo of uh doctor and radio um maybe i'll be able to find that and play it um i've got a copy of it somewhere. do you um yeah. okay well, so maybe that's what we'll, we'll be playing on this show or not the show or the next show but that's pretty amazing we still have the demo of it which is pretty phenomenal um but i know that um we signed the deal and we made a record and doctor and the radio 
it was more reggae wasn't it scar scar yeah. scar and that was the thing that was happening then and we thought that's that's vibey you had um selector selector there yeah. you go the beat the beat yeah. yeah so we went that way the record sold five copies in france nowhere else um five copies yeah and i stayed up all night to hear it on radio sure one five <laughs> <laughs> five sounds a bit good doesn't it three five sounds good. three yeah, I made that up, actually, Charles, because I don't think it sold any at all. But um, <laughs> I stayed up. I think both of us stayed up to like 2.30 in the morning because they said on Radio 4, they're going to spin Doctor the Radio. Wow. And I heard, it on, I heard it on the radio, and I was so thrilled. Anyway, um, before we even get to that single, I've just got to drop back a little bit because this is going to be fun to ask Brian. Our publisher said, you need to work with some people. And uh, they sent us to work with Reckless Eric, ah, punk artist cool. of the time. Now, here's Fair of the Page. American, uh, smooth, rocky, uh, sophisticated, and they're throwing us at Reckless Eric. Um, but we thought that's pretty good. We, we thought we could make it work, didn't we? We, uh, we thought we could make it work, and we actually did make it work. I mean, we actually we got to the point where he, uh, I think Eric, it was hard to tell, he actually accepted the way we looked, the way we acted, and the way we wrote. Because when we first met him... We I got think, on well, didn't we? We got really... I think he was yeah. one of the first guys that we scared off of the, the briefcases. Well, I remember this. We, we were told not to do it. Right? We went into Stiff Records, and because he was signed to Stiff Records, and we turned up with our Fairweather Page jackets mm -hmm. on, world-famous jackets, and, and we had briefcases, and uh, the head of Stiff Records... And this is actually written in the biography of Stiff Records about us doing that, turning up a briefcase. It really? It's in there. Wow. The story of Stiff. That they said to us, you know, you'd be doing yourself a favor if reckless eric doesn't see that you've got briefcases <laughs> <laughs> i had everything in my briefcase my whole <laughs> life was in my briefcase. <laughs> we were professionals <laughs> and uh, he said you know the more you can be loose and round the edges rough and uh, you have to be that way you can't be businessmen because they were struggling with reckless eric mm -hmm. he could they he couldn't have a hit um if they bought it so we were a last ditch effort and they did say that um, you know Reckless was coming through some drinking problems and whatever. But if you if you can if you can write six or seven songs together, we'd be very interested to hear it. We got on with Reckless, I think, pretty well. I think he took to us. No, it, we were so different. I think we yeah. we kind of looked at each other. We'd say something to each other and then like look at each other and there'd be an awkward silence. And it was like we we're just sussing each other out. And then he'd go. <laughs> <laughs> And he wore dark glasses, so we couldn't really tell what oh, he was That's right, feeling. he always yeah. wore dark, dark glasses. It was like really <laughs> difficult to tell what he was thinking. But we did, we did these demos at my, my flat, and um, I must say here, Brian, you really, the music was all you on guitar with him. I can't remember. But did you actually, um, how did we write those songs? Did we start them or did Reckless start them? Well, he would, uh, generally speaking, he would come up with a, a lyrical idea. And, uh, Jesus saves? Jesus saves! <laughs> And that was it. That was enough to start us off. Yeah, oh, okay, you I got pretty I got boys. Keep saying that. Yeah, Keep yeah. saying that. I'll, I'll build on it. You know. Is that how he worked with him? Yeah, I mean, he would have like, uh, you'd have him, he used to play very basic guitar. So he would like uh, strum away. And, and he didn't he have a, I might be crazy here, but didn't he uh -huh. have a yellow uh, Les Paul Jr.? Yes, he did. Oh, yes. good. I still got well, my brain. Well remembered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he used to thrash away on the guitar. And he used to do a little cassette, like we all did in, in those days. We used to do our uh, initial demos on uh, on live cassette. And uh, that's what we got to write on. 
And those demos I still have here, and they're, you know, they're great demos and great songs. And we got very near to making the record. Um, the record company loved the songs. Um, I still think they're really quite powerful. And it's surprising. Reckless was quite an interesting singer, wasn't he? When we first mm-hmm. heard him, we were like, oh dear, oh dear. And then when you listen back, he had real character. Mm-hmm. And we went to the major studios to do the record, and he threw a wobbler. It didn't turn up. I think he stood outside for a while and thought, I don't want anything to do with this. It's too too classy. And he did a runner, didn't he? He headed for the pub, I think. He headed for the pub. And that led me to actually talking to the person who who was running the studio. A lady was there and she knew. I said, I want to get to Los Angeles and me and Brian should go to Los Angeles and we should write songs in America. That's what we should do. And she put us in touch with uh, Diane Poncher in L.A. um, that uh, really started our career in Los Angeles. But I want to just say here... um, before, I think, is it before Reckless Eric or after Reckless Eric, we were enticed into doing, as QPhil, our band, the Euro- Eurovision Song Contest. That's right. Yeah. Um, why did we do that, Brian? Um, we were convinced very heavily by the record company. We said, this is going to be your big break. This is very difficult to break two unknown guys uh, in yep. Britain. And, yeah, we couldn't argue with them because we tried with Doctor on the radio and it didn't hit. Yeah. So um, I, didn't we also release... Uh, Dancing in Heaven. Well, this is it. Yeah, Dancing in Heaven was the. We do, uh, if you think about this, quite funny here that our first single was Scar Reggae. Mm-hmm. Our second single was like Ultravox. I mean, we we went a real forty-five degree angle from because we were it being turned on by what was happening in the charts. We suddenly became a synthesizer band and were very interested with technology. Now. For all, we thought it was a strong record for all around the world. It was bubbling in America, but England not. But somehow Eurovision Song Contest, I think they thought we need something modern and new and fresh. And they we got into the top six songs of Eurovision Song Contest. And all we could think about was if we win this thing, we're going to end up in the double-decker bus at the top. <laughs> an open, open top double-decker bus waving <laughs> British flags going, hey, everybody. See you in Blackpool. I'm so sorry we won. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that when the record company said to me and Brian, you should do Eurovision, we said, no bloody way, no way. <laughs> and he, and, they, and this guy, Stephen Howard, who um, was saying, no, it's a good opportunity. And I said, I'll only do it if me and Brian can make the band look like the Tubes. Yes. We'd seen the Tubes in America with the two sexy girls and they were just wild, wild. And I thought, if we're going to do Dancing in Heaven live, we're going to be wild and left field. And they somehow agreed to it. Um, the only thing they didn't agree to is we had a drummer. Um, what was his name? Um, uh, Trevor. Not, not Trevor, the other drummer that came in to do that because he could sing. Roy. Roy Ward. Roy Ward could sing. So we had to have somebody, because it was a live performance, yes. live performance. So we had to have this drummer who played with City Boy to, be, uh, to play with us. That's right. That's right. And uh, before we went on stage... We all, I was into even meditating. I said, let's get together, lads, and all just stand around. And our Steve Howard from the record company came in, and he saw how we were dressed. And we were dressed military and strange, like the tubes, very bizarre. I got a lot of the stuff from my father from um, NASA. And so we, as you'll see from the video, which I don't know, I'm still upset that it got out. But it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's you, you can see us there. And um, very, very high tech and all that stuff. And I'm sucking into an air- aircraft uh, mask, pretending yeah. that I'm sucking in drugs and everything. And, of course, the BBC let me do that without even really knowing. But before we went on stage, the record company came in and they looked at our drummer. And our drummer had ear an earring. And they were like, take that out. Take that earring out. And he was like, no, no. <laughs> and also, he had a short sleeve shirt on. And he had such an incredible amount of hair on his arms, didn't he? Remember? more hair on his arms than I've got in my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and he was so adamant. He goes, he "No, a, he had a parting on his arm." <laughs> 
he had a couple, party. couple of combs in his pocket to work <laughs> on it. <laughs> Lovely man. I love Roy. And I mean, he just had this fur on his arms. And the, and our, our guy, Stephen Howe, was saying, you can't go on to TV. With fur on your with, arms. With fur on your arms. And he was fighting with him. And it was getting real aggressive. Oh, right. And luckily, you know, uh, which I, I would say that Roy won the battle and he went on yes, with his. Did. So if you look at the demo, you should just stare for those uh, for that moving furry hair. You'll see it on our drummer's arm. Well, there's also one second where... Uh, just after the uh, the drum break, digga 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 dig, yeah. right. right? And he he turns his head. Roy turns his head, and his headphones fly off, <laughs> and nobody's noticed that. I think until uh, somebody pointed it out to me. He said, "Did your drummer lose I, his I headphones?" I see that there? every time now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we had a keyboard player called Chris Richardson, who was a great, great, he was excellent, great yeah. player, great, great musician. Um, but none of us really knew what we were doing on that show, and that was the Qfil days. So, um, well, the beginning of Qfil. Going to play you now a brand new song again, um, a brilliant piece which Brian's been working on, and um, I think I'm saying the title right here because he brought it to me, and I'm sort of playing around with it and adding to it. It's called Amritsar, right? That's right. And there's a story behind this, which I think you should tell, Bright. It's pretty amazing. Well, real quick, without getting into it too heavily, um, in Amritsar, in uh, the Punjab, in 1919, there was a um, uh, a meeting of, um, of Punjabis in a park, and it had been announced by the British government, who were the uh, the... The, uh, in charge at the time, that uh, there would be no uh, collective meetings, and uh, you know th- this was strictly against the law. Ended up in a massacre, and uh, over a thousand people got killed by the British army, uh, who just kept firing until they ran out of ammunition. It was a terrible thing. Amritsar was the town that it would that it happened in, mm-hmm. and um, this is in commemoration of uh, that event, which is just over a hundred years now. No more to be said. Here is uh, the early demo of Amritsar.
great listening to that, Brian. I mean, a bit of a challenge for me because Brian was asking me to sing some of these chants with him, which, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting track, uh, uh, time-wise. I, he took, he had to pra- I had to practice very hard to sing with him. But what, what, is, what does that chant um, actually mean, Brian? Um, it, it was a Punjabi chant, and I'm pr- forgive me if there's any Punjabis out there that say that is not what it means, but this is what I got from it. It, it was na Nazir, na Dalil, na Vakir, na Peel, which was basically, um, you know, there was no inquest into the uh, the tragedy, into the massacre, Amritsar, and uh, there was no satisfactory resolution to it. And it, it still lies open. There's no apology, basically, for uh, for, for the, the devastating event that happened. That's about it. Yeah, well, that's it's brilliant to work on that track because um, Brian brought that to me, and it was a it's becoming a beautiful challenge. And we're still only really halfway through that. I'm very interested to see how we finish that. The big news is me and Brian writing songs together. It's fantastic that after all these years, we still are being fair with the page. It's a wonderful thing. It's a real luxury, and we don't take it for granted. It's just beautiful to have my best friend with me here in my house, like we used to do years and years ago. I think we're very lucky to be writing music, and uh, I just want to thank brian for being here right there with you mate god bless you all right matey boy and uh, i hope to see you again pretty soon because we've got a lot of mu- music to finish absolutely and that was the end of part one with brian we went talking for days and months and years so there's going to be a brian fairweather special part two so uh keep your eyes and your ears clued to radio owl's nest uh, for part two with brian which is actually much 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 better than part one and how can that happen hard to believe just want to say to all you owl heads out there thank you for joining me and brian look after yourselves look after the animals and i'll be seeing you real soon in the owl's nest <laughs> <laughs>